you wouldn't know there's about 200 of them there, but what you wouldn't know is that many of them uh, had either never met each other or the church has been fractured for a long time. And so this is our second pastor's conference that we've done. The first time we had about 120, and this time we had about 200. And we had uh, pastors there that have not spoken for decades. And so they've been really working to bring them together in unity. So Mark and I did the pastor's conference Monday and Tuesday. And then Wednesday morning, we met with any of the pastors that wanted to hang around and talk. And so four of the pastors came in, sat down and said, we don't know this Christian group at Piat. We don't know you. Who are you? Tell us your background. And uh, they said, we had no idea that we could get education like this. And that was our first time to have anything to do with this Christian group that we work with. And so it was a very delightful time. Very delightful. Uh, Kevin, thanks for bringing up uh, Watson this morning, the 10-year-old. Paul sent me a text this morning. He was a septic, is that the word, by the time they got to him. And they asked him, why haven't you gone to the doctor before? Don't have any money. That's their world. That's their world. So the team got together and forked over all the money they had to send him straight to the hospital for emergency surgery and um, to cover those expenses. And, uh, boy, we have a great country, don't we? Don't listen to the press. Don't listen to the press. Okay, a couple of things on the back. And some of you ask me from time to time, why do I do the announcements here? Isn't that a break from worship and sermon? And it's like, I just need to remind you that everything we do together is worship. Everything. I like talking about the announcements because I get excited about what our church is doing. This is just as much a part of worship as singing, prayer, that sort of thing. On the back, there's a bunch of things, but I want to highlight a couple of them. One is next Sunday is Inquirer's class. If you're interested in learning more about our church, maybe joining it. You don't have to. This is the first step. Come and find out about us. You'll notice on April 5th, we have a baptism service planned. If you would like to be baptized, talk to me, talk to Rob, call the office. It'll get to me. And tell them you'd like to be baptized, and we'll talk about it. We already have three that would like to be baptized on that Sunday. And then this afternoon... um, we have Colorado Christian University. There's symphonic band and jazz band in here, right here at 2.30. They're uh, finishing up a trip, and this is their last stop before they get back to Lakewood. So we're hosting them today. So those are all things that we do as a community. And as far as I'm concerned, that's just as much a part of worship as anything, as anything that we do. Because the scriptures talk a lot about what the church does in between meeting together. And that's important. Okay, today's the first Sunday of Lent. Um, being a little bit tongue-in-cheek, being good Protestants, it's hard to find a crucifix. So I have my own. I have several in my office. trying to figure out how to get one up here. Because during the season of Lent, we're focusing on this. Our natural tendency is to focus on the resurrection, which is good. Perfect. It's right. It's at the center of our theology, Right. But there's a time to stop and focus what happened on what happened right here. What happened? Now, I told you when I talked about the Me Too movement that we'd like to sanitize things. Sure enough, he has a loincloth. 
I've never found one without one. So you just have to live with that. He has a loincloth. That's not the way they would have done it. So for the next few weeks in Lent, we're going to focus on what was accomplished on the cross. You see, the purpose of Lent is to prepare you for Easter, Easter Sunday, the resurrection. And you can't really rejoice in the empty tomb unless you know what happened. And it's so much bigger than dying on the cross. Oh, that's a central part. Don't get me wrong. But it's so much bigger than all that happened. Lent prepares us. The season of Lent for um, Easter. But it comes through a variety of things. And I want you to, to ask yourself, where do you find yourself in this list over the next six weeks? Where do you find yourself? Prayer. How much time are you devoting to prayer? Remember we've talked about that traditions done well bring Christ into our world. Traditions done poorly are simply a tradition. They're empty. And so these are the things that will help make this season of Lent far better, far richer. A time of prayer, a time of focus, repentance of sins. That's always been a part of Lent where you stop and you say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know this is wrong. You have nothing to fear by saying to the Lord, I'm wrong. If any of you are parents in here, most of you are, don't you love it when your children come back and say, I was wrong. Isn't that great? Almsgiving. This is where we give to the church. We give to the poor. In fact, I want you to think about something. Sacrifice. It's very common in Lent to give up something. That's good. Nothing wrong with that. I'm a big fan of that. Um, but sacrifice in the Bible is not what you give up. It's not the biblical definition of sacrifice. Sacrifice is something that you pay that's costly on behalf of someone else. An animal is a sacrifice. What did it pay with? It's life. Jesus is a sacrifice. What did he pay with? His life. And the scriptures are full of stories of people that sacrificed on behalf of someone else. Be thinking about that. If you're going to give up something for Lent, perfect. I have no problem with that. But why not go one step further and and single out somebody and say, I'm going to sacrifice for this person during this season. That orients the heart properly towards the other person. That's the purpose of sacrifice. Self-denial. That's the time where you have to do with repentance, where you, you, you take stock of who you are. What are you doing in life? All of us sin. All of us regularly need to have that period of cleansing. Every four to five weeks for communion, I stop and give you a chance to reflect on it. Lent is a great time to do it because we're focusing on Jesus And he's hanging on the cross during this time, during this part of our focus. When we get to Easter, now we have that cross. It's empty. Both are important. Both are important. This season, we're going to focus on the prayers of the redeemed, specifically in the book of Revelation. We're going to look at the best story of all time. The best story in the history of the world. It's fantastic, it's revolutionary, it's radical, it's majestic, and it's a story that the world needs to hear. 
It's the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and what happened. But we're going to look at it through the lens of Revelation. Now let me say a word about Revelation. Revelation is probably the most contested book in the Bible as far as interpretation. Every denomination moves in different directions. We have a bunch of denominations here. That means that I'm I'm bound to step on your toes. I like it when that happens. It gets you to think. We're going to come back in just a minute and talk about Revelation and what I think is happening to kind of bring us together. But first, I want you to, I want to, I want you to think of a picture uh, to help you understand what's about to happen in Revelation 4. When I was uh, 20, I had made it through nuclear power school, got transferred to my first ship. Okay, So uh, I worked out in the engine room. That was my job down in the nuclear plant. So I went through all the qualifications. I qualified on the main propulsion systems, that thing that makes the ship go forward. The uh, turbine generators, those are the things that provide electricity. Potable water, those are the things that you can drink. You know, We make sure we have water to drink and water to shower with. Air conditioning, because it gets kind of hot. Um, things like that. Those are my responsibilities down in the engine room. Well, then there were a lot of other systems on board the engine room, I mean, on board the ship, too. You had the weapon systems, for example. I know nothing about those, but we had people that knew about them. So we had guns that could fire, okay? We had helicopters that could land and take off. We had systems that took care of the food. And being young sailors, we loved food. We could eat 24 hours a day. It was fantastic, okay? It was fantastic because we worked all the time. We worked what they call port and starboard down the engine room. Four hours on, four hours off, around the clock. If we were to see, that's what we did. And so we were hungry. So on their way back to the rack to sleep, we'd pick up two cheeseburgers, eat them on the way, and crawl on our rack and sleep for three and a half hours and get up and go back to work. It was great. You're young. Systems all over the place. So once I got done qualifying on all my systems... Then we had to sit down and say, where are we going to put you for battle stations? When we go to general quarters, in other words, threat is imminent. Our lives could be in danger. We're maybe going to be attacked. Where we, Everybody has to have an assigned spot. And they drilled over and over and over again, running. You know what I'm talking about, you Navy guys, right? And we would, we would get there as fast as we could. We had time limits. So I looked down all the options available to me, and I go... I want to be in the command center. That's where the captain is. So they trained me to go to the command center. So I would sit there, and my job was to report on all the propulsion systems to the captain. I sat right next to him. He had all these boards around him, and it's fantastic because the sailors would go behind the board, and they were all trained to write backwards. And it's dark, and these boards of glass had light, and they used fluorescent, like, And so he could look. He couldn't see the sailors behind the boards, but he could see the status of the weapon systems and everything. Okay? Right down below here, he had, like, uh, these probably radar screens so he could see what's going on around him. And he could talk to me, and he could tell me what's happening with the nuclear plants. And he sat there, and he could see everything. And it always amazed me that sailors were taught to write backwards. So they could stand on this side, and they could write as fast backwards as we could write forward. They trained for that. So I love being in the command center because I could see everything. Everything that was going on in the ship. I kind of like that. I like what's, knowing, what's going on in the world around me. And when we get into Revelation 4, that's what's going to happen. Because Revelation 4, we are given a picture of the throne room. 
of heaven. Revelation 2 and 3, let me remind you, those are the letters to the seven churches. We talked about that actually in an earlier series somewhere. You can go back and listen if you want. We're not going to go over those. We're going to refer back just a little bit from time to time because there's important things in there that relate to the story. But Revelation 4 is that place where we step into the throne room of heaven. So we're going to start in verse 1. John says this, After I looked, after this I looked, after the seven letters, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. The voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come on up here. I'll show you what may take, what may take place after these things. Okay. Now let's remember one important thing. We have managed to teach you, many of you, heaven is someplace up there and earth is someplace down here. We're going to die and go there. I don't believe that. You've heard me talk about that. Heaven and earth are not spatial areas. They're spheres of where God lives and heaven and earth where we live. That's why at the end of Revelation, it's the new heaven and the new earth. They come together. What happens in the end is that God brings heaven to us and we live with Jesus for eternity. He's with us forever. In the new Jerusalem, Jesus is there. We can touch him. We can talk to him. We can listen to his stories. We can feel his embrace. We can do all that. Because you see, when Jesus decided to become a human, it wasn't only for 30-something years. It was for all of eternity. So the sacrifice of Christ is far bigger than the cross. The sacrifice of Christ has to do with staying with us for eternity. And so heaven comes to us. That's always the picture in Scripture. So think of it that way. Don't think of it as space and time. That's around where many of the arguments are. Okay, This is a book about all the future. Set all that aside for just a moment. Because with God, time isn't something that he's worried about. Think of this. There's a door that opens into another realm. We live in that realm right now. Ephesians 2 says we are seated at the right hand of Christ right this very moment. How could that be? We live in two worlds at the same time. That's captured in literature all over the place. Chronicles of Narnia. They went through the uh, shrunk, the uh, covered clothing, right? They go through it into the back of there, and then they're into another world. The Matrix lives in two worlds at the same time. The, the list goes on and on and on in Christian literature. Because we coexist in two worlds at the one, same time, we can only see one of them. But the other one is here, right here. And so God decided, if you will, to open a portal so John could see the other side. That's what this is. This is what this is talking about. Um, John was privileged to see God's view of reality. And that's what we're going to be looking at, is how does God view what's happening? Okay? We see it one way, he sees it another way. And the very heart of all these passages, the songs of the redeemed, have to do is what is true worship? What is that? Thank you, by the way, for leading us this morning. That was wonderful. 
How many of you enjoyed that this morning? Was it in? Now, don't get this wrong. I'm not old. Okay, don't think that. But her dad and I went to college together. <laughs> and uh, we served together in Germany before she was even born. But I'm not old. Okay, then when you get to verses 2 and 3, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Now, I don't have time, and I'm not going to take the time to talk through every one of these. I want to highlight the main points. But you have to remember who he's writing to. The people that would have read this in the Roman Empire would have been well aware of the concept of a throne. That was their world. You had the emperor, and you had all of his senate and trusted advisors all around him, okay, to give him advice. This is a concept that they're very familiar with. So he's speaking in language that makes sense to them in the first century world. Um, John is inviting us, I think, from the very beginning of this. And this is the beginning of the revelation. By the way, it's revelation, not revelations. It's one big revelation about how God, I think, views the world. That's my take on it. And so... He's inviting us with the very first statement of the vision. He's inviting us to see that all the powers of the world are forgeries. They're copies. They're pretenders. They're imitations of the one true living God. Just like when I sat next to the captain of the ship, I could see all that was going on. John is now in the throne room, and he can see from God's perspective all that's going on in creation. It's a spectacular chapter, chapter 4 and 5. I believe this is a description of Easter. I believe this is a description of this. You'll see why when we get to chapter 5. We're invited now to see reality As God sees it, not through the lens of evil, not through the lens of terror or tragedy, but through the lens of a true living God who is all-powerful and all-sovereign. He is in control. He's in control. John is allowed to stand, the very great privilege, in the command center of all creation, and he's privy to the praises and the conversations that are going on. They're happening right now. If we could take these lenses off and put on a different lens, this place would look very different. Because we live in two worlds at the same time. This is the world we see. But at the same time, true spiritual reality is lived out in another world. It's not just about us. You have all the creatures of heaven, the angels, you have everybody involved in this drama. Everyone, and we're invited to take a look at this. The word throne occurs 38 times in Revelation. John is trying to communicate to us that all of world events are controlled by our God. No such thing as fate. No such thing as coincidence or accidents. I don't believe that. I believe we serve the one true living God who is in control of all things. Well, then he goes on in verse 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. 
Now, church history has consistently taught that these represent the people of God. And the reason why is because Revelation 2 and 3, which we're not going to read, but those letters to the seven churches, we regularly see language of the, the faithful receive crowns, white clothing, kingship, or thrones. And this is the language of uh, Revelation 4. Hey, Dave, can we have somebody put these verses up there? Let's have somebody put these verses up there while I'm reading them. They are? Oh, Jean's not there. All right, you got it. Never mind. You can see it. I can't. I can see it because I have my Bible. <laughs> so all throughout Revelation 2 and 3, you have all of these people are, are received these rewards of thrones and white garments and crowns and all of that, and that's the language used here. So church history has traditionally felt that this represents uh, God's people. Somehow it's a combination of probably the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, but it symbolizes the people of God. So these are the people of God. This becomes important in just a minute. By the time we get to Revelation 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lampstands were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. This is a very dynamic scene. And by the way, whenever God erupts into our world, these are the things that happen. Remember Mount Sinai? Okay, thunder, lightning everywhere. Whenever God decides to visit our world, it's terrifying. And John got a chance to see it here. There's lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, seven lamps, blazing fire, the seven spirits. We talked about that earlier in the series when we did the first, the seven churches. Uh, the sea of glass, we'll get to that when we talk about Revelation 15 later in Lent. We'll come back to that. So when God's purposes are revealed, we can ex- display. That's what happens. And John just happened to step behind the veil, if you will. It's happening now. We just can't see it. But it's happening. So just picture that you live in two worlds at the same time. So John begins his vision with a view of reality. This is the beginning of his vision. Behind all these uh, things that we're going to see stands one who is greater the one true living God. He is behind all that is happening. Okay, now we're going to get to the songs of the redeemed because this is where I wanted to head. All of this information serves as a foundation for what we're about to read. Revelation uh, 5 through 8. Uh, Let's see. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and in back, the first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third was a face like a man. The fourth was a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around and under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, again, church history has taught that this represents the animal kingdom, the rest of creation. You could divide creation into two broad categories. Humans, who are made in the image of God, and everything else. Okay? And so they've put these two things side by side. And you'll see why in just a minute, why they teach this. So this language here is kind of a mixture of Isaiah 6, the seraphim, and the four creatures in Ezekiel 1. 
You want to read those? You can. They're fascinating passages of how God views all of creation, not just here, but in the places we can't see. This is kind of an amalgamation of all this stuff brought together. These are amazing creatures. But here I think we're beginning to see a distinction between the animal kingdom and humanity. Um, they, John wants us to see that all of creation is dependent on God and worshiping him each in its own way. You notice they're just praising God continuously. But more than that, they're described as having eyes all around. And that's designed to bring us, us a sense of comfort. Not everybody. Okay? Who wants to know that you're being observed? Yeah, when you're in your sin, guess what? Whatever your particular sin happens to be, the Lord is right there watching. Eyes all around. Don't be frightened. Turn back to the Lord. Turn back to the Lord. It's kind of like the saying that in our country in particular, we don't like our privacy. I was, I was on the trip to Haiti, and I asked one of the nurses, if you don't mind, ask, uh, how old are you? She said, I don't tell the information. I said, okay. Oh, I see how old you are. How did you know that? I just Googled your name and your address. Everything about you is public. I can determine your net worth. Did you know that? I can look up when you were married, when you were divorced, what your birth date is. It's, it's all public. Welcome to our country. You don't like it? Move to a communist country. It's partly tongue-in-cheek, by the way. Everything is public. You have to get used to that. That's what it's like for Christians. Everything is public and reviewed by God. The only people that have to worry are those that are doing this. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't respond in shame or anger. Respond in humility. Because we have a God who actually cares. So I think this symbolizes God's omniscience. Because these same creatures later on are going to inaugurate all the judgments and execute punishment on the evil rulers of the earth. Therefore, they're meant to encourage us and that God is paying very close attention. Eyes everywhere. He sees what happens to you. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to give you confidence and encouragement. God is watching you. He knows your frailty. It's okay. But he also is paying close attention to who is hurting you and abusing you. Then he goes on in verse 9. Whenever the living creatures are giving, uh, uh, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, they fell down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. Now, we've already seen that this most likely represents the people of God. And here we begin to see a critical distinction between humans and the rest of creation. Here's why. What makes us unique? We can use the word because. Animals can't. Trees can't. Rocks can't. They simply worship God. We worship God because of who he is. And what he has done. We have been given the capacity to think, not react. See it in there? 
You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, power, uh, glory and honor and power because you created all things. That's the difference in our worship, the songs of the redeemed, and everything else in creation, is we have the capacity to understand why. We simply don't worship because he's God. We worship because of who he is and what he has done. That's why there's so much information in scriptures on thanksgiving and reflecting. We have the capacity to reflect. And really, this raises a question of do we really believe 1 John 4, 4? Look at 1 John 4, 4. My dear children, you are free from God. You are from God and have overcome them. These are the antichrists that are in the world. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe it? This is the story of Revelation. We are being a gl- given a glimpse behind, through the open door, behind the throne room, of what is actually going on right now all around us. God is greater than anyone else in the world. Revelation 4 becomes a picture of what ought to be going on among God's people. So what does all this mean? I have some thoughts. Number one, we can be assured, no matter how rampant evil is, no matter how much suffering and destruction evil causes, we can be assured that God is superintending what's happening. We can be assured of that. It's very easy to say we have it blessed, those poor people in Haiti. But you saw the video of them praising God. I've never seen you sing that loud. They lift the rafters because they are so excited about God. They have sensed, they have glimpsed a a picture of grace that I'll never see. Not easily. Because life is good for me and life is not good for them. So they have tasted something far deeper than what I taste. As we'll see, all the judgments of Revelation throughout Revelation issue from the throne. In other words, God is in charge. We can see the true essence of worship now. It's more than giving praise to God. It's giving praise to God because of who he is and what he has done. It is a regular exercise in contemplating his greatness in our life. There's a... The songs of the redeemed all have these things in common in Revelation. So we're going to look at them over the next few weeks. They're all going to teach us something about God. It's one of the most remarkable features of Revelation, these songs of the redeemed. Throughout all the judgments, all the punishments, all the imagery that we're going to see, which confuses everybody, throughout it all, I'm going to weave this thread with the songs of the redeemed because the redeemed continually praise God for who he is and what he has done and what he is doing. So when the seven of everything is poured out, they start praising God because they get to see something. They get to see the one true God taking action in a very broken world. We have nothing to fear. Look at John 5.24. Go ahead and put John up there. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my words 
and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And you can say it this way, will never be judged again. Because he has crossed over from death to life. Revelation gives us a picture of the redeemed singing praises to the Lord because they are very aware of who he is and what he has done. This is what this is all about. Right here. By the time we get to Easter, you're going to be jumping up and down in celebration. Father, thank you. Not just for what you did on the cross, Lord, that in itself is worth everything we have, but your willingness to give us a glimpse. A glimpse into the much deeper things that are occurring simultaneously with us right now in another world that we can't see yet, but you can. And the cloud of witnesses that have already preceded us, they see it. Thank you for giving us the capacity to think about what you have done and to be grateful for it. To truly worship you and all of your goodness to us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to take the offering. Think about this. Whatever you have in the way of wealth, it's not because of how good or smart you are. It's because of the Lord's blessing. Thanks for your generosity.